What is up? And welcome to another episode of Beyond the Art with Brandon Silvers. As always, I am your host, Brandon Silvers. First things first, as you can see, I am in a new undisclosed location. I mentioned the studio change last week, and we are here getting it ready. As you can see, nothing up on the walls. Looks a little bit like a juvenile detention facility, but it is what it is. It's going to be great, though. I mean, this particularly helps me out while my house is getting fixed up from the busted pipe that moved me to the sunroom. So I'm excited to be here. Should allow for more in-person interviews as well. If you didn't listen last week, go back and listen as soon as you're done with this episode. But I mentioned between getting stuff done here and the holidays, the schedule might be a little bit different than what you're used to. So go follow the Brandon Silvers on Instagram for any updates and any other news about my life, including pictures of my dog. All right, so let's get into it. The NBA just announced that they're renaming the awards they give out at the end of the season after some legendary players. I'm always hesitant about naming things after people and building statues of people because not everyone ages well. And the concern isn't necessarily, oh, turns out so-and-so was a member of the Confederacy here, but also what if a better fit comes along for the award? But since none of the awards were named after Kyrie, that's a problem for another day. Today, I want to look at if they actually pick the best player to name each award after. So let's go ahead and start off with the Michael Jordan most valuable player award. To me, this is a no-brainer because I think MJ is the greatest player of all time. Only Kareem won more MVP awards with six to Mike's five, but you can make a strong argument that MJ should have won at least one more in 1997 when he lost out to Karl Malone, a man who I would advise against naming anything after. And MJ won those five MVPs in five fewer seasons than Kareem did. To me, this is the league's way of saying MJ is the best to ever do it, I've made that case before, so I'm going to spare you today. What I do want to get into is the dynamics of the GOAT debates. This is going to help me out with what I'm doing here today. How do you evaluate one player against another, particularly when they played in different eras? What matters more, peak or longevity? How much does winning matter? At a certain level, you're just splitting hairs. I mean, who the hell really knows? You can never be proven right or wrong, unless, of course, you have a sports podcast. Beyond the Arc with Brandon Silvers declares MJ is the GOAT, so of course he should have the Most Valuable Player Award named after him. Now, I will say he's also a sneaky contender to have his name removed from the award due to some disgrace related to his competitiveness and or love of making money. After hearing Charles Barkley talk about the end of their friendship, I feel bad for MJ. He's even better at holding a grudge than he was at basketball. MJ and Charles were best friends until Charles said something along the lines of the Hornets, who MJ owns, will never be good so long as MJ is surrounding himself with yes-men. And that's an incredibly fair criticism in my opinion, but even if you think it isn't, it certainly doesn't rise to the level of friendship ender with your best friend. Charles said they've been in the same room a number of times since this happened, and they just walk right past each other. The stories of MJ holding grudges and using stuff like this to motivate himself have been around forever, but at a certain point, it can't be worth it anymore, right? Like when you're losing your best friends, which also kind of proves Charles's point about yes men, because I can't imagine anybody in his inner circle daring to question him for this very reason. I was hoping after hearing him speak at Kobe's memorial service that he had turned a corner on this. I mean, that was the most vulnerable I'd ever seen him. And vulnerability is a good thing. But we're all on our own journey. And that was something I had to work on myself. I've certainly gotten better, but I'm still a work in progress, which brings me to my feud with former ESPN writer Chad Ford. Back when Twitter was mostly for jokes and arguing about sports, I got into a kerfuffle with him about Hakeem Olajuwon. Now, I've gotten into many Skip and Shannon Sharp type debates about Hakeem because that was my first favorite player. And he was my favorite player when everybody's favorite player was Michael Jordan. 
so I could defend Hakeem like he could defend everybody else. Anyways, this was when Anthony Davis announced he was turning pro and Ford tweeted that AD was a better draft prospect than Olajuwon was. On his face, this isn't offensive, but I felt it was lacking context. First of all, Olajuwon was the number one pick in the 1984 NBA draft ahead of Michael Jordan, and nobody has anything to say about it because of how good Hakeem ended up being. Now, nobody, particularly the Portland Trailblazers, knew how good Jordan was going to be either, but it's very hard to imagine AD being considered a better prospect than that, even in that era. Secondly, in the point I made to Chad, Hakeem had only been playing basketball a couple of years by that point, so of course AD should be better. I mean, Hakeem didn't start playing until he was 15. Chad tweeted back that AD didn't start playing center until he was 15, so it was the same thing. Wrong. There's no comparison. The man literally did not know the sport. That's like comparing me switching from an Android to an iPhone to my grandmother going from no cell phone to having an iPhone. She doesn't even have it anymore because learning new shit is that hard. But if she was Hakeem, she'd be out here FaceTiming all her grandkids and using Apple Pay at the grocery store. If anything, playing point guard helped AD learn how to play center quicker because as a point guard, you have to know how to play every position. Although you can't tell because he refuses to play center now, even though him playing center would be best for the Lakers. And AD has been great to start this season, but Hakeem is light years ahead of AD in terms of all-time greatness. So shut the hell up, Chad Ford. They won't be naming any awards after Anthony Davis or my grandmother, but the NBA did name their Defensive Player of the Year award after Hakeem. Clearly, I'm a little bit biased, but I think they got this one right, too. The only competition for this one would be the late great Bill Russell, but he's already, and deservedly so, got the finals MVP award named after him, so that's that. Nobody else really compares in terms of both dominance and versatility on the defensive end. Dennis Rodman comes the closest, but you know they're not naming anything after him, and he's not even that close to Hakeem because once he started focusing on getting rebounds, his defense suffered. Hakeem guarded big men in an all-time great era for bigs. David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Shaq. He blocked more shots than anybody else since they started recording blocked shots. And he blocked them in a way that it wouldn't just stop the other team from scoring, but he'd tap it to a teammate to start a fast break like how Bill Russell used to do. The coordination required to do that is wild. And he could move his feet like a guard, so if he got switched off on a perimeter player, he wasn't going to be out there looking like Rudy Gobert. In fact, my only concern with them naming the award after him is I don't want them to mess around and give it to someone like Rudy Gobert. Hakeem is criminally underrated, so I'm glad to see him get this recognition. I logically know, as I explained earlier, that debating about which player is better is generally pointless in a matter of opinion. But I want to tell all of you who have Steph ranked ahead of Hakeem all time that your opinion is wrong. Steph is absolutely the greatest shooter of all time, and he revolutionized the way the game is played, but Hakeem revolutionized the way the game is played for centers offensively. If you put a small guy on him, he'd take him in the post and go to work, and if you put a big guy on him, he'd face him up and he'd put him in a blender. And you couldn't get physical with him to make him less effective like teams do with Steph sometimes. That shit the Cavs pulled on him with Matthew Dellavedova, the Knicks tried the same thing with Hakeem in the 94 finals, except it wasn't just one guy. It was Ewing, Oakley, and Anthony Mason. And what happened? The Rockets won the championship, and Hakeem was finals MVP. Okay, those first two were kind of easy. Gets a little tougher here with the John Havlicek Sixth Man of the Year award. That was way before my time, and I can't tell you how much he started versus how much he came off the bench because basketball reference doesn't even have the stats for him for games started. I do know he had five seasons where he averaged over 40 minutes per game, including two over 45 minutes per game, which is nuts whether you're starting or coming off the bench. I didn't know Tibbs was coaching back then, so I can't really tell you he's not qualified to have this award named after him. Career averages of 21-6-5 are fantastic, even if you are playing the whole game. 
Ideally, you want this award to be named after an all-time great who plays the bulk of his career coming off the bench, which eliminates almost everyone because the majority of all-time greats end up becoming starters for most of their careers. Past six Man of the Year award winners like Kevin McHale, who won the award twice, Manu Ginobili, and James Harden would fit the legendary criteria, but they also didn't come off the bench for the majority of their careers. Now, what if we eliminated the all-time great criteria and picked the true sixth man of all time? That leaves you with two choices outside of Havlicek. First, Jamal Crawford, who was a Sixth Man of the Year award winner three times and one of the best handles this game has ever seen, probably the truest prototype of a Sixth Man. He was a starter midway through his career, but he switched back to coming off the bench and was much more effective that way just based on what his game was. And then there's a guy who immediately comes to mind for me when I hear the word Sixth Man, Lou Williams. Lou was drafted by the 76ers out of high school to basically learn how to be Allen Iverson. Now, he was never on the level of AI because the only guard that size who is in terms of pure scoring ability is AI, but Lou could light it up. And he was a true sixth man in the sense that he rarely started games. His career high for a season was 38 starts, and his career high in minutes per game was just under 33. Havlicek averaged over 36 minutes per game over the course of his career. And Lou also won six man of the year three times like Jamal. Unfortunately, we know too much about his life for him to have any awards named after him. For starters, pun intended, he's referenced in the Meek Mill song House Party. Go listen to that song and you'll understand, as much as I personally love it, that nobody referenced in that song will ever have a reputable award named after them. But that's not even the song most people think of when they think of Lou Will. That would be Six Man by Drake. The title referenced Lou's status as the Six Man and also that he played for Drake's hometown Toronto Raptors and Toronto is also known as the Six. The song itself references the oddly public story of Lou's two girlfriends who both knew about each other and got along. There are people who know him more for this fact than for basketball, and rightfully so. The thought of this seems incredibly stressful to me. How do you even go about bringing this up? The ability to handle high-stress situations and the irrational confidence needed to even suggest such an arrangement is exactly the type of mindset you need to be a great six-man. And he's honestly selling himself short by playing basketball when he needs to be somewhere negotiating for world peace. And these two things alone were more than enough to stop him from having an award named after him, but he more than sealed the deal with his field trip during the 2020 season that the NBA finished in the Disney bubble. Lou got permission from the league to leave the bubble to go to a funeral in his hometown of Atlanta, which is fine. But then he was seen on an Instagram story of Jack Harlow, of all people, at the strip club Magic City. Jack realized that he had dry snitched on Lou and he tried to say that it was an old pick. Only problem was that Lou was wearing an NBA-issued mask that they obviously only gave out in the bubble. Then it only got stranger from there as he claimed that he was only at Magic City, not for the breasts and thighs, but for the wings which sounds a lot like someone saying they were just watching porn for the plot. But what's even crazier is that turned out to be true. He loves the wings so much that Magic City named them after him. This man broke quarantine to go to a strip club to order Lou Will lemon pepper barbecue wings, which do sound amazing. Anyways, he missed games because of it, but there's no reason to name an award after him if he's already got strip club wings named after him. That's an even greater honor. Now, if you had to guess another player who would have an item at a strip club named after him, who would it be? For me, it would be Wilt Chamberlain, who was ahead of his time in that respect and on the court. As a result, he'll have to settle for having the Rookie of the Year award named after him instead. Wilt averaged 38 and 27 as a rookie, and I can confidently say nobody, rookie or not, will ever average that again. 
which is just like one of a million unbreakable records that Wilt has. He also averaged 48 and a half minutes per game one year. The games are 48 minutes long, so we had to play every minute, including overtime games. Nobody will ever come close to that. Wilt was not about load management in any sense of the word. The same year he set the minutes per game record, he also averaged 50 points a game for the entire season. Even with three-pointers, that's impossible. Wilt holds the top four spots for scoring average in a season. The first non-Wilt person on the list is MJ with 37.1 points per game in 86-87. He would have had to play an extra quarter each game to catch Wilt, and he's Michael Jordan. Also in that season, he set the record for most points in a game with 100. This is also the source of my new favorite conspiracy theory. Did Wilt Chamberlain actually score 100 points in an NBA game? First off, mighty convenient that he scored such a round number of points. He broke his own record of 78 points, allegedly, when he did this, and he needed triple overtime to get to 78. But on this day, he scored his 100th point with 46 seconds left, and they just ended the game to celebrate. On top of that, there's no footage from the game. I've seen footage of Jesse Owens ruining Hitler's day from 1936, but nothing from 1962, and the only audio available is from the fourth quarter. Then there's the way he scored the points. What was a notoriously bad free throw shooter, 51% for his career, except of course for this game with no footage where he miraculously hit 28 out of 32 free throws for 87.5%. Either way, I guess the Rookie of the Year award is a good fit for him since there's no fake record award and you really don't have anything else to name after him, which is also what happened for the most improved player award that they named after George Mikan. Now, he was a great player, considered by many to be the league's first superstar, but nothing about his career really screams most improved to me. Maybe because there's a drill named after him that you can use to improve. That feels like a hell of a reach, though. But George was a great player. He just played a million years ago for the Minneapolis Lakers, so he's underappreciated, and the league is trying to make up for that. Let's go through and name some winners of the most improved player award that you may have forgotten. Dale Ellis, Bobby Simmons, Dana Barrows, Daryl Armstrong, Ike Austin, George Mirasan. All right, that's all we need to talk about there. And finally, the NBA created a new award that I can't wait to argue about, the Jerry West Clutch Player of the Year Award. I have no problem with it being named after Jerry. I only ask that he throws it and breaks it like he did his finals MVP trophy before giving it to the recipient. But how do you even begin to decide who wins this? To me, this is an example of the NBA doing too much. The league has an issue where they don't understand that sometimes less is more. We don't need any more awards, just like we didn't need all these Christmas Day games. Getting to play in a Christmas Day game in the NBA used to mean something. Now they just bring in anybody, and I'm tired of it. The NFL got this right. Christmas is on a Sunday this year, and that's their normal day, but they move most of the games to Saturday to make the three games they're playing on Christmas more special. That's good scheduling. I would name a good scheduling award after them. All right, going to keep this one short and sweet. This has been fun trying to adjust to all these changes, making me sweat a little bit, but it's okay. Hope you have a nice week and holiday. As always, I appreciate all of you, and thank you for continuing to like, subscribe, rate, review, comment on, and share my stuff. And I will hopefully catch you next week.